The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. In Discussion with David Gibbons is sponsored in part by Bowman Global Change. Specializing in helping companies reduce their carbon emissions, Bowman Global Change applies real science to real business practices to produce results. From designing green programs to one-on-one training to helping set up green action teams in your business, Bowman Global Change translates complex science in practical ways that everyone can understand and use. For more information or to discover how Bowman Global Change can help your organization, visit bowmanglobalchange.com. Today, Naomi Oreskes, PhD, Stanford, 1990, is Professor of History and Science Studies at the University of California, San Diego. Her research focuses on the historical development of scientific knowledge, methods and practices in the earth and environmental sciences, and on an understanding scientific consensus and dissent. She's held grants from the National Science Foundation the National Endowment for the Humanities and the American Philosophical Society, and is listed in Who's Who in America and Who's Who in Science and Engineering. Oreskes' most recent work deals with the science of climate change. Her 2004 essay, The Scientific Consensus on Climate Change, led to educational pieces in the Washington Post, the San Francisco Chronicle and the Los Angeles Times, and has been widely cited in the mass media including NPR, The New Yorker, USA Today, Parade, as well as the Royal Society's publication A Guide to Facts and Fictions about Climate Change, and most recently in Al Gore's movie An Inconvenient Truth. She joins me today to talk about her life and work, Merchants of Doubt. Dr. Naomi Oreski, welcome to In Discussion. Thank you, it's a pleasure to talk to you. I'd like to commence this program, as I do with all my honoured guests, and to return to your earlier days in order to provide clarity for our listeners, including further education at Stanford University. With this in mind, may I ask you to talk to your childhood days and the journey that followed into academia, citing perhaps the catalyst that brought you to the fields of history and science? Sure. All right. Well, so I was born in New York City. I grew up in the 1960s in New York, which of course was a time of great political unrest in the United States, and I think I grew up with a great sense in belief in progress, belief that things were getting better with civil rights and women's rights, and also a fairly deep belief, my father was a scientist, a fairly deep belief in the power of scientific knowledge to make things better for people. 
Um, so my own interest in science, I went to a science-oriented high school, Stuyvesant High School in New York City, and I always was interested in science, especially, I guess, what you'd call the natural historical sciences. I was one of those kinds of kids who collected rocks and bugs, and I also loved being outdoors. So when I discovered geology as a field uh, where you could be outdoors and do natural historical kinds of things, that really appealed to me. So my first degree is in geology. I worked as an exploration geologist in the outback of Australia for several years, and then I came back to the United States to do my PhD at Stanford University. What was the makeup or transition between childhood and the subsequent move to Stanford? Uh, did your life change and evolve towards successfully managing that, st that step uh, from the protective environment of childhood into the academic world? Mm. Well, I suppose everyone's life changes enormously between being a teenager and being an adult. I think for me, the, the two biggest issues, uh, one had to do with being a woman when I was in geology. I did my first degree in England at Imperial College at the Royal School of Mines. There were only two girls in my class, in my graduating class at Imperial College in 1981, and I was the first woman to get a degree in mining geology from Imperial College. And one thing that did to me, I think, was to make me feel very obligated to do well and in a way very obligated to stay with it and not to quit or drop out as many girls and women did because the pressures were fairly great and you always felt like you were being watched and you always felt as if one false move and you would prove to the world what they already believed, which was that girls couldn't do science. So I think that was something that kind of hovered over me all the time and in a way delayed my transition into being a historian of science because I was always also very interested in history and in politics and in people. I've always, I, unlike a lot of scientists, I'm actually interested in people. <laughs> I'm interested in what makes people tick. I'm interested in why people do the things they do. And especially with this latest work, I'm interested in why, you know, why it's so hard for us sometimes to accept evidence and information that doesn't fit with what we would like to be the truth. So I think that you know, being a girl geologist, uh, I focused on geology. I focused on doing geology and being a good geologist, which I was. But when I got to Stanford, there were all these other interests that were still always hovering around. And at Stanford, which is, of course, a great multifaceted university, I had the opportunity to take some classes in history and philosophy of science. And that was a bit of a eureka moment for me because when I discovered history of science as a field, I realized there was a domain where a person could combine my love of science and my interest in science with my interest in the world around as well. So during this time, did you engage or attempt to discover anthropology? Was that an area that you felt required your attention in complementing these other areas of interest? No, because one really couldn't, because at that time, studying in the United Kingdom, you studied one subject and one sub subject only. So my classmates and I, we were all geologists. We studied geology from 9 in the morning till 5 o'clock at night. We went on geology field trips on the weekends. We lived, we breathed, we ate rocks, and that was what we did. And so there was no real opportunity to do anything else. You really were required to focus in a very specialized way. And, of course, that had its benefits and its deficits. But the great benefit of it was we learned an incredible amount. We knew an enormous amount about the earth and about rocks and about nature. And you felt good. You felt a sense of satisfaction at really learning one thing very, very well. I had the great privilege, among many other wonderful guests, to share a series of programs with the eminent Professor Bill Tiller, who 
interestingly spent a year at Oxford, um, who as well as coping with the many stresses of you know working in the scientific academia, and you know coping with the establishment, had to to deal with the mindset and the cultural shifts. Did you yourself? detect any distinctions between the British and American culture on returning to the U.S. academic institution? Well, yes, but of course there were so many different things, it's hard to sort out, you know, the different pieces. I think for me, part of what was stimulating intellectually was that one has the idea that science is this great international activity, which because of its internationalism, science is the same, whether, you know, there isn't American science and German science. In fact, the notion of German science, we would think of as being highly discredited by the Nazis. Um, you know, that science is the same no matter where you are. And, of course, it isn't really true. So one thing I really noticed when I traveled, you know, first from the United States to Britain and then from Britain to Australia and then Australia back again, was that it was, it was really different in different places. It wasn't exactly the same wherever you went. And that was interesting to me. It, it showed me that the social context, the cultural context, the political context, that all of those things did matter, and they did affect the way scientists did their work. They affected the way scientists thought about um, what constituted good science, and it also affected the way scientists thought about what their roles and obligations were in the world. I found, ironically my American scientific colleagues to be much uh, more narrowly focused on technical work and my British and Australian colleagues much more willing to think about and talk about the social context of the work they were doing. In regards to that world that you grew up in then, uh, you know, that period being essentially the 1980s, I suppose I would comment in response to your last statement that it's clear that we all suffer from the same reoccurring old age problems, you know, those being the essence, as it were, of or the, the faults of the establishment to which you talk in your book, Merchants of Doubt. Are there in your mind any tangible changes that have taken place in the way that scientists work, uh, in the way that they attempt to develop their theories or present them in a different way for more successful outcomes today? Well, I suppose that's a question I'd want to answer, not so much in terms of my own personal and perhaps idiosyncratic experience, but more as a historian who looks at these questions. I think, for me, when I think about it, I think about sort of the sweep of the 20th century. And there, it seems to me, there, there's one really big change that took place, and then a second smaller change that's happening now that's important, which is to say, in the work I've done on science in the early 20th century, one of the things that always struck me was that scientists in the early 20th century were very conscious of the social context of their work, and they were also very conscious of the need and the importance for them as scientists to communicate to the public. So one of my favorite examples of this involves a scientist I studied named William Bowie, who was the head of the U.S. Coast and Geodetic Survey in the United States. So these are the people who make maps and figure out the shape of the Earth and use that science to correct, to make correct and accurate maps. William Bowie used to do a weekly radio program on geodesy in the 1920s. Now, most people have never even heard of geodesy, and if they have, they think of it as a pretty obscure science. And the idea that you could have a radio program talking about geodesy, you know, is kind of mind-boggling to us today. But yet he did, and he talked about why geodesy mattered, and then he would give examples from his work of things that were interesting that people might listen to. 
that really changed in America after World War II. And I think it changed because of the change in the funding structure of the United States, a change that most scientists would say was all to the good, but which as a historian I see as having been a bit of a two-edged sword. So what I mean by that is after World War II, the United States set up a set of funding agencies that included the National Science Foundation, the National Institutes for Health, and a number of other groups that greatly increased the amount of funding that was available to science, made it much easier to do basic scientific research in America, but it also made it possible for scientists to do their work without having to think as much about public support and without having to do radio programs. And so what you see in the 50s and 60s is academic scientists becoming more academic, becoming more specialized, becoming more focused on just their science, and beginning to act as if or feel as if you know, it's not really their job to communicate to the public. I certainly grew up in that atmosphere. I grew up in the atmosphere that if you took time to communicate to the public, and Carl Sagan was the famous example of this, that you were really diverting your attention away from your real work, which was to do the science. And so I know when I was in graduate school, we were greatly discouraged from paying attention to, you know, what you might call social context. And people would use the example of Carl Sagan as a warning, like, don't become like Carl Sagan, because if you have a television program, you know, he had Cosmos, you won't be taken seriously as a scientist. You'll become discredited. And that, I think, was profoundly damaging, and I think it, it relates to the topics that Eric Conway and I discussed in Merchants of Doubt, because since scientists pulled back from communicating to the public, it opened up a kind of vacuum that it made it much easier, you know, for the opponents of science to come in and raise questions and cast doubt about the science. And when they did that, there was no response from the scientific community. And so the public heard these messages of doubt, and they didn't really hear a con convincing or compelling response to it. And I think that did a lot of damage. It's clear to me, I suppose, as a social historian, and certainly in my research, that much of the world today in the scientific, philosophic, political and even religious arenas is very much the result of the immediate period following World War II. And at this time, many industrial and social mechanisms clearly changed. And we are, in a way, the result of that paradigm. But if I may ask uh, you a question, I would ask that if scientists are placed back into their box, as it were, and that transparency or interaction with the public is minimized, does this make them more open to attack from the establishment who discourage research that, you know, may not be in line with their overall social and business goals? Yes, I think definitely. And I think we saw that last year with the, you know, so-called climate gate affair that um, because scientists are not in communication with the public and because most scientists don't really know how to communicate, they don't have effective lines of communication open, it makes it rather easy for other people to attack them and try to discredit them. And when scientists try to defend themselves, as many climate scientists did this past year, they either are unable to do it because they don't even know how to get in touch with the media, they don't have those contacts, or even if they get the contacts, they don't know how to respond effectively. Um, perhaps in compounding that problem, Naomi, it would be in talking with scientists evident that those involved in quantum theory or relative theory or established paradigms, that they are unable to overlap because they are so locked into their own theories or area of work. 
I believe that it now takes a facilitator or vehicle that brings them together in order that they can think outside of their area or box, as it were, which is so needed. Yeah, I think that's right. I don't think it's so much that individuals are locked into their theories. I mean, most scientists I know are pretty open-minded people and are aware of the risks of being too dogmatically committed to any particular theory. But I think the second part of what you said is correct, that what they are deeply into is their own specialization. And, and that's an aspect of modern science that I think the public doesn't understand so well either, that most modern scientists are incredibly, incredibly specialized. They work on very, very particular aspects. So even to use the phrase climate scientist in a way isn't really very good because really there are no climate scientists. There are climate modelers. There are people who work on, you know, the atmospheric chemistry of aerosols or people who work on, uh, you know, the chemistry of ice core. It's all extremely specialized. And now if the public wants a simple answer to a question like, well, how do we know that global warming is caused by people? Well, that's a perfectly legitimate question that any citizen has the right to answer and a scientist ought to be able to answer. And yet I found, working with the scientific community, it's amazing how few scientists can give a clear and coherent answer to that question. And some of them honestly, I mean, they kind of know, but if you actually ask them to explain what the evidence is, for global warming being caused by human activities, a lot of them actually are not very good at explaining it, and sometimes they don't even know the full answer to that question. So the extreme specialization of modern science makes it very difficult for scientists to communicate what they need to. And so then again, the question is, well, so then who can do that communication? And then you have a kind of gap. There are very few people who are actually qualified, able, articulate, to, to, to give those kinds of explanations. Eric and I often have found, you know, having written this book, we get asked all the time all kinds of scientific questions, and we do answer them because we've taken the time to learn the science. But sometimes we find it remarkable that as historians, we feel like we're doing a better job explaining this than the scientists are. And that, I think, points to a problem in the scientific community. So with all that said, I'd like to move to your work, The Merchants of Doubt, which places, you know, much emphasis on the tobacco industry, tobacco, and I, I do think that as an example to the overall theme of the book, it cites, you know, well, the global issues. It reminds me almost of the famous quote by Thomas Brown, no one should approach the temple of science with the soul of a money changer. I, I, at the end of the day, I believe much of what you talk to with this industry is reflected well with guests in the past of mine, such as Dr. Irving Dardig, that there is so much compromise in science by the greed in society. What was the main challenge in writing this book and further that most profound resolution in the overall intent? That's a good question. I'd say the main challenge writing the book was not being infuriated. <laughs> you know, virtually every day Eric and I would come across some new document that was just more outrageous than the one before. And we really did feel outraged by many of the things we found and the, the, the gross misrepresentation of the science, the cases where it was pretty clear that people were just lying. Um, it was difficult to write about that because, as you know, if you get emotional and if you begin to sound hysterical, then many people will dismiss you as hysterical. And especially for me as a woman, I'm well aware that many people would be quite happy to dismiss me as a hysterical female if I gave them the opportunity to do that. Um, so I think we, the biggest challenge in writing the book was to assimilate all this material, to take a deep breath, to stay calm and say, okay, this is a story that needs to be told. 
it won't help for us to go hysterical. Um, we'll just tell the story as factually as we can, and the story is powerful enough that it speaks for itself. And I think most people who've read the book do feel that we've we've achieved that. So we feel you know we feel proud of that accomplishment. We felt what for us was most important is we wanted people to see the pattern. And it's funny, there's a review of the book that just came out that sort of was written by a climate scientist kind of criticizing the book for only having one chapter on global warming. And, of course, that was extremely deliberate. And, in fact, we went back and forth in our discussions. I had to laugh at that comment because we originally had a vision of the book that was mostly about global warming. And then we thought, no, what's most important here is to put the global warming story in context and to show that there's been a systematic pattern of trying to undermine science um, that begins with the tobacco industry, was really cultivated. The whole strategy was very, very carefully honed by the tobacco industry. And now you can see that same strategy being used over and over and over again in these other issues. And I, we, I guess we feel that if people see the pattern and if they understand that the pattern was created and invented by the tobacco industry, then people will understand the nature of the attacks that have been being taken place on climate science in recent years. I'd certainly, you know, concur with that conclusion. And certainly with my programming, it was always about pragmatic delivery, calmness, you know, reason with a measure of fairness and balance. You know, one could easily travel down the conspiracy route talking about the Illuminatis and various dark organizations. But frankly, it serves people better to state the facts as indeed you have, which reminds me again of Richard Cabot's statement, ethics and science needs to shake hands, which, you know, constantly took me back as I read your book, because that is essentially what the book is about in the way that science and ethics can work together. So in that vein, in writing the book, do you see by default that the modern paradigms in social media like Facebook and others offer no other choice for experts, you know, media heads, uh, heads of industry, you know, beyond the many other groups to be anything but transparent in that ethical truth, uh, you know, that becomes reality at this point. Well, I think that's right. I think it was always important to be transparent. It's always been important that, you, you know, here at the university, we sometimes have what we call the front page test that if you do something, how would you feel if it was reported on the front page of the newspaper? I think that concept has always applied to anyone who's in a position of public trust. But as you say, it's sort of in a way forced upon us now by social media because nothing really stays secret very long. Um, and also, but the problem, of course, as we saw again this year, with the stolen email issue, things also are very easily taken out of context. And that makes life more difficult for people because, of course, everyone relies on email now. And many people say things on email that, taken out of context, can look rather different than how they were intended. It's interesting, however, to move back one stage, one level, I suppose, and that you offer a gift in the way that the book builds a narrative, in the way that the scientific community has been led and as previously discussed um as you do uh use well the tobacco industry in serving that strategy you know what is the common thread as you weave this together in sending a strong message that in any area of life whether it be climate change or sustainability all of which i suspect that there are still many unknowns and indeed structure is needed to in order to qualify and quantify them 
you know, further to that, that you know, there are many old age issues of manipulations that could reoccur even today in these new paradigms. You know, a repeat, as it were, of those problems you define in the tobacco industry itself. Well, yeah, I mean, I think the common thread in the book is this strategy of doubt-mongering. So what we show in the book is that for a variety of different issues, tobacco, acid rain, the ozone hole, global warming, the strategy that was used by people who had a strong interest in preventing action was to raise doubts, to raise uncertainty, to emphasize the uncertainties in the science. And, of course, that was a very clever strategy because, as you and I both know, science is never certain. Nothing is ever proven absolutely positively in science. And research is all about pursuing the uncertainties, digging into the uncertainties, digging into the areas where things are not well understood, and pushing the boundary further. So by, by its very nature, scientific research is constantly under, uncovering new uncertainties and new unknowns. And the doubt-mongering strategy takes advantage of that. It takes what's a strength of science and turns it against it. And so it's really important for people to understand this that if you hear someone saying, well, I don't really know, you know, there's still a lot about the science that we're really not sure about, a little, we hope that after people have read our book, a little warning bell will go off in their heads if they hear that, and that they should know that it might be true that there are still important uncertainties, but it also might be somebody using that as a strategy to prevent action. It reminds me hysterically of the cynicism of Shaw when he said science is always wrong. It never solves a problem without creating 10 more. You know, it's a strange business complicated by this underlying problem you cited earlier, that there's a vacuum, you, you know, in between science, philosophy and business. There's a vacuum where we still have not found a way to facilitate that bridge of communication in offering a, a way for all these individuals and groups to understand how each other clicks. Exactly. And and also, you know, some people who have been trying to, uh, you know, raise doubts or, or slow policy action or, um, you know, who knows what their motivation is in some cases, sometimes people will say, well, you know, scientists shouldn't be telling us what to do about global warming. And on some level, that's true. Many scientists are not very educated about policy options. So it is true that we shouldn't assume that just because someone is an expert in, you know, atmospheric physics, that they're necessarily going to be a wise guide on whether or not we should have a carbon tax or a cap-and-trade system. So this is one of the other points we make towards the end of the book. We need to respect expertise. We need to respect knowledge and the work that people do to truly learn things about the natural world. But with that goes also recognition of the limitation of expertise. And so it's also important for scientists to be clear to be clear about what they know and what they've studied, but also to be clear about saying, well, okay, but there's a certain point at which I'm not an expert on the question of carbon taxes, but let's hear, who, let's hear from those experts. And, and one thing, you know, again, if I were to criticize the scientific community, I think the scientific community has been disrespectful of social scientists and other experts who are actually better placed, you know, better placed to talk about what the possible solutions are, a better place to talk about why the public is so susceptible to denial. I mean, there's all kinds of psychological and ethical issues that come to bear and I've been in lots of conferences with scientists where they want to talk about ethics or communication, and yet it doesn't seem to occur to them to invite people who are genuinely experts in those areas. So I do think the scientific community needs to do more work to embrace the social scientific experts who can help guide us now into the area of solutions, because we know what the problem is. The problem is very well articulated, and the evidence 
for climate disruption, climate change is overwhelming. But if we move into the realm of solutions, then we need a different kind of expertise. In that, of course, we could talk all day about the human frailties, Naomi, and the human makeup, such as you know, fear, codependency, and everything else. And that all has to be considered in these discussions. By human frailty, despite all of those difficulties, we have plenty of examples in history where people did move forward, where people did take action, where people did solve problems. And sometimes it takes a long time, so it's important not to get discouraged. You know, in our book, one of the things that is discouraging about our book is we cover 50 years of doubt-mongering, and we show how the same strategy has proven effective over and over and over again. And again, when Eric and I were writing the book, we sometimes thought, man, don't we learn anything? <laughs> Doesn't anybody pay attention? Doesn't anybody have any memory? Um, so, so, yes, one has to recognize that these things sometimes take time, but at the same time, there is some grounds for optimism that despite human frailty, solutions can be found, people can move forward, uh, and we don't have to simply throw up our hands and say it's hopeless. So, in other words, it's all about perseverance, and if we may, I would like to examine briefly that doubt-mongering that you mentioned. You know, we're so unconsciously opposed at the moment to an establishment that in itself is so unwilling to change. And I guess we see that in the world today, when we're probably in one of the worst economic periods since the 1920s. And, and yet in all this, we still look at the financial system and indeed money as the idol. And, you know, all of these continue to interrupt and further not allow scientists to fulfill their missions as much as they could. Well, I think that's true, and I think your point about the establishment being unwilling to change is very important because if we think about climate, of course it's tied up, particularly here in the United States, with dependence on foreign oil, which is bad for the environment, it's bad for the economy, it's bad for the balance of trade, it's bad for our foreign policy and national security. It's bad in so many ways that sometimes I feel like climate is almost the least of it, at least at the moment. So if we would move towards a new energy basis, it would be good in so many different ways. But obviously there are some very, very powerful interests that don't want to see that change. And so we're struggling against that now. And I do feel like we need some kind of breakthrough, and I don't know what that breakthrough will look like. Well, it could be the Francis Darwin methodology of finding a man or woman such as Gandhi who could find a way to convince the world of something that... Even I'm not sure what it could be at this stage, but in taking um, to so many experts and friends where sustainability is certainly at the top of the agenda presently. But, you know, it, it's evident that we are falling into this abyss and nearing the point of severity in our world where all those things you discuss, whether it's oil, greed or unwillingness to change, that there has to be something that could and will be catalytic in the form of natural disasters or perhaps a paradigm that simply says enough. Mm -hmm. And, of course, one hopes that it doesn't have to be a catastrophe, right? One doesn't want to say, well, until... Well, it, I mean, in any event, it's actually happening. I mean, look at the floods in Pakistan, right? I mean, millions of people have been displaced by those floods, but we still seem to have trouble connecting the dots. Um, I just wrote a piece yesterday... Um, where I try to make this argument. I mean, one of the things that's challenging about global warming is that no one individual event is proof of global warming. So whether it's the fires in Russia, floods in China, floods in Iowa, floods in Pakistan, I mean, no one of these things by themselves 
you know, kind of nails it, but you look at the pattern and then you see that all the things that scientists have been predicting, these predictions are coming true. So we know it's happening and it's not just a small thing. These are very substantial changes, and yet still it seems to be hard to get people to add it all together. And maybe that's part of the problem. Climate change isn't just one thing. It's a whole collection of different things, and some of those different things are even opposing. So at the same time, you can have uh, drought and flood. You can have heat waves and record cold. And I think that's hard for people sometimes to assimilate, that these seemingly opposite things can all be effects of the same one cause. Would you agree with me then that it's important for anybody to know or to now learn from history and looking back over the 300 years at great people like Franklin Lincoln and even Shakespeare, to name a few, that the statements made then are as applicable now uh, as they were then? I, I mean, what is it about people today and finding an example in my mind to support this theory? You know, it also takes a catalytic event for people to find their head uh, out of the sand uh, or take their head out of the sand perhaps that example being Hitler's invasion of Poland but before any tangible action takes place at which point it's almost too late anyway but in context to our discussion and also in acting as a segue to global warming who is there to offer people that understanding and who will take that leading role Will it be the corporate mansion leaders or citizens who finally stand up and take this responsibility? Yeah, well, of course, that's a really good question. Historians never like to talk about the future. We only like to talk about the past. And as a historian and history professor, I, of course, agree with you 100% that we don't think about history enough, we don't remember history, and we don't learn from it because we don't remember it. So the example of World War II is, of course, a depressing one because, as you say, people did respond too late, and the net cost, I mean, historians, I've just finished reading a wonderful book uh, by William Hitchcock, The Bitter Road to Freedom, about the civilian costs of World War II, and, you know, we know that tens of millions of people died in World War II, you know, massive devastation that it's easy to forget in hindsight, and we often like to focus in hindsight on, on the triumphant stories of World War II, but... World War II was a global catastrophe of unprecedented proportion. So when you invoke an example like that, I have to say I do get depressed <laughs> because I do think that there are many examples from history that do seem to suggest that people don't react to early warning signs and they do wait for catastrophe to be upon them before they act. Um, so if there's a lesson, the lesson should be don't do that again, right? We need to pay attention to the early warning signs and now we're even, I think, past the early warning signs. I think the early warning signs were in 1988 when Jim Hansen first said that global warming was happening and we had, at the time, historic heat waves in the United States. Now I would say we're into the mid-level warning signs. Um, so the lesson of history is if we wait and ignore these warning signs, the cost of repair will be much, much greater and some of the damage will be irreparable because, of course, you know, as a Jew, if we talk about World War II, those six million Jews will never be brought back, and the damage that was done to Jewish culture and to European culture, that, that was irreparable, right? That was not fixed by the Allied victory at the end of World War II. This launches, I suppose, into what I see as being the central part of the conversation, and I believe it was Gazimov, if I'm correct, that said the saddest aspects of life right now is that science gathers knowledge faster than society gathers wisdom. 
And this is where I travel with experts in that it is this disconnect. And I see it more in global warming arenas than any other right now. You know, I think that people such as Al Gore have attempted to create a medium that can send a vital message, but it still returns back to that idea that there is an unwillingness for people to wish for change. So with that said, um, I don't want to become melodramatic with conspiracy theories, mainly because most of them happen to be fact anyway. And in that people appear to be so conditioned and so manipulated that, you know, they don't see any more because of their imprisonment. And even that they are unable or unwilling to change, you know, with all of this. It's always the challenge, therefore, and in my own work, Naomi, to find the solutions to encourage people as yourself to take these issues to another level in order to provide a solution to that vacuum that exists between the scientific, philosophical and business communities, you know, to inspire them. They are the solution. Um, you know, it is not in my mind, the Coyote Accord or any other vehicle, but for them and all of us to stop burning fossil fuels, to find ways in which people can, you know, en masse change their world and environment? Yeah, well, that's a really good question. I, and I would, I can't say that I feel that I know what the answer is. I certainly have experienced the frustration in the last few months doing interviews not like this, but doing radio interviews where, you know, someone will give you five minutes or seven minutes to address a very complex and difficult problem. And so, you know, one of the big challenges about communicating on an issue like this is the sort of superficiality, I guess would be a way of saying it, of so much conversation that goes on nowadays. I had a depressing experience with one national radio program here in the United States that's considered very respectable, probably considered one of the best, most serious radio programs in the United States. And they were very interested in our book, and they were considering doing something about it. But then they came back to us and said that it was too big. And when we asked, well, what do they mean by too big? They meant too big a topic, too big a topic to be covered because they never dedicate more than five minutes to any one topic on their show. <laughs> and I have to say that was pretty depressing, right? I mean, if you can't dedicate more than five minutes to talking about a problem that is going to potentially affect hundreds of millions of people on the planet and radically alter biodiversity, possibly destroy the coral reefs, acidify the oceans, melt the glaciers. I mean, if that's not worth more than five minutes, it's hard to know what would be. Um, so I think that's a big challenge. And then I, I think the other big issue is fear. I think that, you know, one of the lessons of history is that people are fearful. People are afraid of change. People view change as loss. Psychologists have done a lot of work on that question. And so people are afraid of change because they're afraid that they will lose what they have. And so I think one of the things we need to do in the case of climate change is to say, well, yes, if we don't do something to stop this, we should be afraid. The fear is legitimate here, but the fear should be on the side of doing nothing. That's what we should be afraid of. If we take actions, if we develop green technology, make better use of renewables, those are not things we need to be afraid of. Those are things that we know can be made to work. You know, I was in Denmark a few months ago, and they're exporting 20% of their wind power to Sweden. You know, it's creating jobs, improving their balance of trade. That's nothing anybody should need to be afraid of. So I think that's kind of the core of it, is that, you know, to kind of shift the valence about what people are afraid of. 
What then in your mind will generate this change of thinking globally? I mean, there are many organizations such as the UN that were set up to satisfy disasters, such as those in the Gulf of Mexico and Haiti, um, you know, back in the post-war years that have appeared to lose their way. Is it in your mind, looking at all these facts, including the history of the tobacco industry, sustainability and the climate problems that now we need a completely different mechanism set up uh, to, in layman terms, act as an intermediary, you know, to take the power away from these organizations in, in order to affect real change? No, I actually don't think that. And it's interesting, you know, as a historian, I've been thinking a lot recently about the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change. 1992, 162 nations promised to take action against global warming, including the United States, a little remembered fact here in America that George H.W. Bush signed the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change. So what happened after George Bush signed the Framework Convention? Well, it went to the U.S. Senate where it was defeated. The Kyoto Protocol was defeated by a vote of 95 to 0. Not one senator, not one Democrat or one Republican voted in favor of the Kyoto Protocol. And if you ask yourself, well, first of all, why? One thing that's very clear, and this comes out in our books, the opponents of Kyoto, like the opponents of action on climate change in general, are very afraid of loss of national sovereignty. They're very afraid of any kind of international treaty which would compel the United States to actions that are determined by other people. And I think, even though I totally disagree with these people in virtually every other respect, I think that the fear of loss of sovereignty is not illegitimate. I think any time you start talking about moving power further away from people, I think that's something that people have a legitimate right to be concerned about. And also, this is again where history comes in. If you have looked at the history of the United States, if you had thought about it, ask yourself the question, why did environmentalists vest so much in an international treaty? Well, I think there are various reasons why they thought an international treaty was a good idea, because it's a global problem, so it seemed like it needed a global solution. And yet, we know from history that the United States has always, 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 always been highly resistant to any kind of international treaties. George Washington warned us against foreign entanglements. Uh, the United States has always preferred bilateral negotiations. You look at the acid rain thing, the United States refused to participate in the global treaty on acid rain, but negotiated bilateral commitments with Canada. And it's about power. And so I think that one needs to be realistic about power, and one needs to say, look, if you swing for the fences, you have a very high chance of striking out. But if you look at first base, <laughs> and you just you say, I want to get from here to first base, I'm now being a good American and using a baseball metaphor, getting to first base is a whole lot easier than hitting a home run. And so I, I guess I do think that if the question is action, we're better off focusing on what individuals can do, what communities can do, what states can do, and even individual nations like Denmark. I think, you know, you can create a groundswell of energy and enthusiasm. And I do think if people feel empowered, if people feel, yes, there are things I can do as an individual, that's important because the alternative is that people feel a sense of despair, that nothing they do matters, and so you may as well just go on with business as usual. And that is where I suppose a triangular confusion of internationalism, competition for resources and the movement of people comes in. And if you have this constant movement towards resources with the complication of that internationalism, it's 
very much restricting people's ability to unite because of the old age-old problems of nationalism uh, and internationalism to which the US appears rather guilty of feeding all of that together. You know, that all divides political and cultural accord. What is it that you believe could alleviate this in perhaps dismantling the global village or certainly diluting its negative energy and effects? Could this maybe be part of the problem and also part of the solution if identified and perhaps rearranged? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, I guess it gets back to this issue of it being a complicated problem in the sense that global warming is a global problem and there's a component of it that does have to be viewed globally, particularly because the, you know, the impacts of what we do, say, here in the United States are being felt all over the world. And, you know, as you mentioned before, there's a profound ethical dimension to this because the people who are suffering from sea level rise are not necessarily the same people who benefited from burning fossil fuels. So there is a global component that can't be ignored. Yet at the same time, I think there's benefit to unpacking the problem a little bit into sub-global units because, you know, you mentioned the competition for resources. That's a really good place to think about this problem because the solution to needing to decrease our dependence on fossil fuels is not going to be the same in every place. So I mentioned the example of Denmark where a substantial amount of their electricity now comes from wind power. Wind is a very effective solution in many parts of the world, but it's not going to work everywhere. Similarly, solar energy can be highly effective in some places, but it's not going to be really great in Finland, right? So, well, maybe it'll be good in Finland in the summer. But, you know, so what's going to work in one place is not necessarily what's going to work in another place. A carbon tax, you know, in British Columbia, they have a carbon tax. Here in the United States, people don't like taxes, so we might be better off with a cap-and-trade system. So I think we do need to think about what will work in the context of particular nations and regions, and I think, you know, sometimes I hear people say, well, the solution to global warming is X. And I, I think that's a mistake. I don't think it's a matter of the solution. I think it's a matter of a set, a portfolio of solutions. And I think that may help us, again, break through the gridlock by saying, okay, well, here in Southern California, we should be pushing solar energy. You know, somewhere else in the Great Plains, the United States, let's go back to wind, which used to power the Great Plains after all anyway. And I'm wondering what it will take by the participation of people in community. You know, it will always be a problem of these many organizations being insular, but you know by looking back in history, there would have been a time when citizens would have taken to the streets. But now it seems I, I, I don't believe that people have the necessary will or energy um, or inspiration. So it's that revolving wheel of events where as long as people are conditioned by the system, that it would take a massive turn of events that will wake people up to the realization that, yes, something has to be done, and that, of course, if by then, it's not too late. Right. Well, that's the big question, of course. So we have to hope that it doesn't wait, you know, that, that it isn't too late when something like that finally happens. I, I guess, you know, when I think about these things, I think of it as a both-end problem. So I think what I just said a moment ago about diverse solutions is true, but at the same time, there's, you also need leadership. And so even if we have solar power in California and wind power in Nebraska, we still need to put it together in a national grid. And here in the United States, as you probably know, we desperately need to upgrade the national electricity grid to make it easier and more efficient and more cost-effective to move electricity from one area to another and to share 
uh, electricity that's generated in one part of the country with another. And, of course, that's not something that an individual alone can do. So that's where the national leadership has to come in. So I guess I'm hopeful that we will see more articulate national leadership to connect up the different things that are being done on a regional level. And as we know from history, sometimes it happens, right? We have had great leaders who have taken a stand and provided the leadership that the community needed. So I haven't given up hope that that may yet happen. You've already stated that you have, and you've cited other examples in the book, but elected to only devote a small part of it to the issue of global climate change. Clearly, however, there was a psychological value or or perhaps objective in that method in showing, to my mind, that many scientists have been crucified for the heroic way in which they have changed an industry. Do you think that this sacrifice will be seen and repeated again in the area of global warming, global climate change? Well, it wasn't our objective. I have to say it wasn't. We didn't consciously think of that at the time, although subsequently people have made that point. Some people have made the point that even though in some ways the book is distressing read, right? There's a lot of uh, distressing things to read about. Ultimately, there is a kind of optimistic reading of it, which is that all of these previous problems did finally get solved, and the scientific evidence was communicated and action was taken. We didn't deliberately write the book that way. Um, We wrote the book the way we did because we wanted people to see the pattern. We wanted people to see how these were disingenuous attempts to stop policy action by attacking the science, not because there was a real problem about the science. So it wasn't our intent to create a narrative structure that would then say, so don't worry, it'll all be all right about global warming. (laughs) In fact, I think if anything, the way I felt when we were writing it, although, you know, it's it's a shifting it's a shifting baseline was rather sort of the opposite that that uh, there were these other problems that did eventually get resolved but in every case it took a long time um, in every case damage was done people died from lung cancer because of the delays in controlling tobacco uh, the northern forests of Canada and the United States are still suffering the damage of acid rain um, the ozone hole has still not recovered so I saw the delays as highly damaging and problematic. And also, I worried that as bad as those problems were, they were still small compared to the problem of global climate change. And people often ask me the question, the comparison with the ozone hole. Well, we took action. We did get an international treaty on ozone depletion, and the ozone hole has not recovered yet, but it is on the road to recovery. So why can't we do that for global warming? And of course, the answer to that is pretty clear, that ozone, as serious as it was, still was a very, very small problem compared to climate disruption, and it involved a relatively narrow class of chemicals, mostly made by one manufacturer, the DuPont Corporation, and used in some important activities like refrigeration, but still a relatively narrow section of the economy. Now we're talking about fossil fuels, which are the basis for all economic activity across the globe. So the scale of that problem is just orders of magnitude bigger. So despite the somewhat happy ending of these previous chapters of the book, I was left feeling very, very worried at the end of the book. Looking back then in respect to your childhood and that environment you so enjoyed, what is it that you brought into the book beyond that evidence developed with your co-author, Eric Conway, that, that you personally brought yourself? Mm, well, that's a wonderful question. Of course, I suppose my colleagues in the English department would always say that writers don't know 
what, what they're bringing to their own writing. <laughs> we're, the, we're the last ones to answer that question. But if I had to say, um, I'd say two things. I think, I think my scientific training, my father was a scientist. I was always raised in this kind of scientific environment. I think that was really important because so much of the book is about understanding the science. And another part of what I was just talking about a minute ago is the more that Eric and I read the science, the more we learned about the science, the more worried we got. And so we really came to think that if people are not worried about this problem, it's because they don't understand the science. They don't understand how grave this issue really is. So I think my childhood of being kind of steeped in science and learning how to read science and believing that people could understand science. You, didn't, that, you know, my father was a chemist, but I became a geologist. But I was raised to think you don't have to be a chemist to understand chemistry. You can understand it even if you aren't a research chemist. I think that was really important. And then I guess the other piece of it is, you know, as I mentioned, I am Jewish, and I certainly was raised with the Jewish value of tikkun olam, taking care of the world. And Jewish theology is very clear about the idea that we are indeed our brother's keepers. And it's not all right to just sit in your house and clean up your own kitchen or cultivate your own garden, as Dr. Pangloss would put it, that we do have an obligation to each other and to the planet. And I certainly was raised with that. My mother was active in the civil rights movement, um, even though she herself was not African-American. So I think that sense of obligation combined with reading the science and understanding it really led to a feeling. Eric and I often said to each other, you know, it's not like we really chose to write this book. It was more like once we discovered these materials, we didn't really have a choice. We had to write the book. And I think we definitely felt that way before, and I think we still feel that way now. Dr. Naomi Oreskes, it's been a great privilege talking to you today, and I do wish you great luck with your, your book, Merchants of Doubt. And I do believe that you're going to be joining me again along with my esteemed uh, friend, uh, learned friend Tom Bowman in the future. Thank you so much for joining me. I have enjoyed it. It's a, it's a privilege to be able to talk about these important issues for more than five minutes. So thank you very much and I'd be delighted to be on the program again. And to our listeners today, I hope that you have enjoyed this program as much as I have. You can gain information on this and any other program in the series at davidgibbons.org. Meanwhile, wherever you are in this world, I will wish you good morning. Good afternoon and good evening. David Gibbons in Discussion welcomes listeners' comments and viewpoints at its blog at davidgibbons.org. This programming is supported by organizations and firms in the private and public sectors. In Discussion with David Gibbons is sponsored in part by Bowman Global Change. Specializing in helping companies reduce their carbon emissions, Bowman Global Change applies real science to real business practices to produce results. From designing green programs to one-on-one training to helping set up green action teams in your business, Bowman Global Change translates complex science in practical ways that everyone can understand and use. For more information or to discover how Bowman Global Change can help your organization, visit bowmanglobalchange.com. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.